I mean, I think a lot of religions kind of support that and encourage the discipleship. And I think it's good. I think it's definitely a pathway that fosters growth and development and encourages, you know, leads to like emotional and spiritual development. But I also see um, maybe discipleship misused. Yes. Kind of encourages the dependency. Exactly. There's a difference between discipleship and dependency, and we often conflate the two. Yeah, and I think that's where discipleship is a kind of discipline, and it's a kind of thoughtful yielding to something, where dependency is a kind of blind yielding that without not taking responsibility for oneself, and the two get interchanged and misused all the time, in my opinion. Like I think being a disciple encourages someone who's being who's believing and someone who's teachable and and um, mm-hmm. able to trust. But mm-hmm. sometimes I think we call behaviors like someone who's gullible or who's easily manipulated or easily controlled. I think sometimes we call those behaviors believing and teachable and trusting, but they're right. different. So I'm just in a very general way, I guess. What's what's the difference between? those two being yeah. believing and gullible or teachable and yeah i think that being you know right to revert the value of being humble uh, by the way, way that i think of humble is to be is to be teachable right it's to be willing to see what you don't yet know yeah. it's a willingness to basically self-correct to learn you know, that you may have mastered a lot of things, but you're still open to what you haven't yet mastered or what may be wrong in your thinking, that's humble. And humble humility comes, it's a function of courage. It's a function of strength, not of limitations. Because um, it's despite developing knowledge and capacity you remain willing to let what you believe or what you think be challenged or changed mm-hmm. in order to get even closer to what's true and what's right. But the value is not just in being moldable. It's moldable towards greater wisdom, knowledge, clarity, and strength. Right. So if you're humble as a musician, or let's go with a scientist, yeah. You're humble. You're willing to be discerning, thinking, taking positions, trying ideas. But as much as you may like an idea or a theory, an explanatory theory, uh-huh. to be a humble scientist is required if you're actually going to get to what's true because you have to be willing to have your theory be blown apart by evidence <laughs> if it needs to be blown apart, right? If it, if yeah. it needs to come down in order for something truer or better able to account for reality, well, that's a function of courage because you're not going to let your ego or your predetermined ideas keep you from what's truer or more right. So that takes moral courage. That takes strength. In that sense, humility is absolutely a virtue, but it's not humiliation, right? It's not the absence of any discernment or taking a position, or taking shape, or deciding what you think is right. You do have to do that to become godly, to be able to be a force in the world of any kind. 
it's just that you don't you're not immoderate in that direction you don't um, you know when we talk about the word weakness uh-huh we can it was weakness right this idea that you just will take anything you're just like a baby kind of yeah but weakness in the Greek the Greek word meek you know was this was an Aristotle word but Aristotle talked about virtues as being kind of the golden mean and meekness for example is to be right in the middle between extreme anger and angerlessness right this is kind of to the topic of forgiveness that we were talking about uh-huh that to be meek is to be able to be capable of meaningful anger but not be in either distortion of extreme angerlessness or extreme anger. And so somebody who's meek, quite literally, is able to have a response in the world, able to make decisions, is able to, you know, have appropriate anger for things that aren't right or aren't okay. Yeah. But they're not extreme in one direction or the other, and so it allows them to keep moving forward and being a force for goodness in the world. And it's the same with humility. You have to be in the center. You have to be willing to take positions to own what you think is right, and yet to stay open-hearted and not get distorted in one form or the other, where you're closed to any input, or that you're open to every input, and therefore vulnerable and not able to be a force for good. Yeah, yeah. I like how um, you point out you have to be willing to take <clears throat> a position. Um, yeah. So, so one scripture then that um, I've been trying to make sense of mm-hmm. uh, is the one in Proverbs where it says, "Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto your own understanding." And mm-hmm. I listened to that, and then I liked in in your interview that you did for Dialogue Dialogue Magazine, you talked about mm-hmm. your experience in the MPC. And mm-hmm. um, let me find. I want to read just a mm-hmm. portion sure. of it. He said, I remember having a bit of an internal crisis during a testimony meeting um, where I was wondering if God would really ask me to pretend. If I just looked the part, does that please God, or does he want me to be true to myself as long as, long as my intentions are sincere and pursuing, and pursuing truth? Is that acceptable mm-hmm. to God? And so there's mm-hmm. like this idea which I, I believe in a God who wants us to work it out, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And then I like this scripture in Proverbs where it says, "Well, trust in the Lord and lean not into your own understanding." It seems a little right. conflicting to me, and and yeah. what's your take on that? Well, first of all, I think there's a, a lot of scriptures that, if you just take them at the verse themselves, just teach the wrong idea. Okay, so if you okay. if you just take the the scripture in and of itself, that one verse it would then give the wrong idea. So it's sort of looking at what's the bigger picture of wisdom that's here. I do think it's a true idea, which is trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not to that understanding. If you understand it from a wise position, not a limited position. The wise position is you want to trust in God and goodness. You want to trust in the fact that there is a force for good in the universe that you may not fully, that we don't fully understand, that we can't fully see how it's operating and how um, meaning we're all functioning from limited understanding and that's very important to realize in ourselves otherwise we do commit the sin of of arrogance or superiority or narcissism 
Mm-hmm. So you want to trust in the fact that goodness is real, that God is real, and there are things that you don't yet understand. Um, so that's striving for something that's outside of your reach that you don't yet understand is a force for good. I mean, that pushes you to keep growing and learning. And so I think the context of that is then you don't want to just fall into trust in your own understanding alone. Mm that your own understanding becomes the only way of doing it. You know, the people that think they know everything, the people that sort of limit themselves by assuming they've got it all worked out. Um, So in that sense, I think it's valuable, but that's not the same thing as saying have have none of your own thoughts, that your own thoughts are a problem. You must have your own thoughts. If you don't forge your own thoughts, how can you be ultimately godly? That is our theology, that we will become, we're developing into godlike beings. You can't do it unless you start to forge your own inner internal compass, your own sense of what's right and wrong, what is good and what is not good, to be wise both about yourself and the realities and principles in which we all operate. And so... It's not saying just be dumb. <laughs> right. First of all, it's, it's, impo- it's impossible because you have to discern who you're even going to trust. You yeah. have to discern who you think is worthy of trusting. And that requires that you have your own thoughts and thinking. But if we problematize it, then we actually rob people of an internal compass that's essential for becoming wise actors in the world. It's like this this ability to be able to make good judgments while being while real you know being aware or having um, of your potential limitations in your thinking and perspective and being open to right. feedback. But it sounds like you're also saying that you're also being maybe choosy or picky about the feedback that you're willing to take in. Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, you don't have to close yourself off to feedback, of course, but you want to really think about what do I think about the feedback that I'm getting? What do I think about the trustworthiness of the person offering the feedback and what motivates them? What, you know, I mean, we ultimately have to discern what we are going to trust and the legitimacy of that trust, you know? You go to a doctor, you're going to look if you're doing your job, is that doctor board certified? Do they they have any, you know, um, accounts against their licenses? Or you want to go get a second opinion about that. Because blind trust is dangerous. A thoughtful trust, a thoughtful faith is valuable. Yeah. Um, Which kind of brings up the idea of, like, having mentors in your life, I think. You know, throughout yes, our life, exactly. we have, there's always opportunities for mentors on some level, whether it be a teacher, a parent, yes, or... No question. Like, you've even talked about, you know, how David Snars has kind of influenced some of your thinking, and I think yes. there's a good place for mentors. No um, question. But how, how do you, how is learning from a mentor different than, like, just turning your thinking over to another person? I mean, even, I mean, what if, like, a lot of your thinking is very similar to David Snars? Like, how is that... How is that different? Yeah. Well, because 
you know, it, 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 it's tempting the idea that whatever this person thinks, I will not think that. <laughs> yeah. Because that's, but I think that's morally lazy. You know, uh, to just say you now are the one who's going to do the thinking for me. We're really compelled by that idea. That's that's in moderation in, in one direction, which is I just want someone to take care of me. Uh-huh. And a lot of us, a lot of people like that, and they'll call it good even because they like having power over other people. So often there is a lot of focus on obedience or loyalty or yielding as a virtue because it's easier to control people if they'll just do that. So but that's very different than a kind of yielding that actually creates strength in the person who's doing the yielding. What I'm saying is that oftentimes people encourage the, the virtue of deference or yielding or uh-huh. trusting as a way to have control over other people. Yeah. Very, very human behavior to, for the, to have that kind of symbiotic destructive relationship, which is I want you to yield to me because it reinforces me and it reinforces my power and I'm going to make it a virtue that mm-hmm. you yield to me. And the person that wants the safety, quote unquote, of being dependent on another person, it's not true safety, but it can feel like it, yeah. will value that yielding in themselves because they don't have to take on as much responsibility for their lives. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so so that's obviously a limitation when it's that blind, that much of a loss of self. But there's that golden mean again of like, how much do I borrow a perspective? that it will actually help me think through something. I want to try that perspective on. How does that stack up against my experience? How does it stack up against what I'm actually seeing or learning, right? So, you know, for example, I tried on lots of different theorists thinking because, you know, I was seeking, seeking, what do I think is true? How do I make sense of the world? I've always been that way. And so I've tried on lots of different authors' ways of thinking, lots of different people's ways of thinking, and always kind of grappling with what do I think captures what human beings are about and what really makes a difference and what are the things that make a difference in my life? What are the principles that I've actually seen, the fruits of them, that they create goodness, they create freedom, Mm -hmm. they create joy? See, anybody's ideas I'm stacking up against my lived experience. Yeah, stacking stacking up against my 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 best moral judgment and pushing it up against that measure in myself. But that's in a, a really important process. But you want to stay open enough. You know, my daughter's a musician. She, we just got back from the music camp, so she's getting input. You know, she's achieved a certain level of capacity and then she's getting input on how she could refine it you know it's a tension like ah you know i've already worked so hard you know you're gonna tell me to do it differently or better or stop doing this one thing i've learned for so long so i can do this other thing you know that just takes uh perseverance it takes a kind of courage to keep doing it so remaining open is essential to refining and developing but Oftentimes, there's also, she also got the feedback several times this time, you are at a level of playing that sometimes you just have to decide what do you think is the way this piece should sound? What do you want to do right here? Hmm. That it's starting to say, express yourself through this. It's a really important part of just even developing yourself as a player 
is bringing your own self, your own discernment to this experience. Yeah. So there's that. Uh, any good teacher is helping you ultimately get to that place. Bad teachers create dependency in you. Yeah. Okay. So I have two thoughts. Um, what was my first one? Then if I remember my second one, we'll go there too. But as you're talking about like a good teacher, a good teacher is kind of helping you not to be dependent on them, but to maybe, I guess, think for yourself and to act for yourself and to be able to... Yeah, to become strong within yourself. Yeah. yeah. And so I, one, one theme that I've noticed, I mean, using a Book of Mormon reference, is Nephi often, I've noticed it more with him than other people where they use the word persuade, that he's often persuading his brother yes, to do this or exactly. to do that. Yes. And I, so in my mind, I'm trying to understand, like, okay, when is persuading a, a helpful thing, a good thing, and when is yes. it crossing a boundary where it's maybe destructive? Because right. I would say, again, it's to the, your very same point, which is persuading in what direction. You know, therapy is a kind of manipulation of your client. Okay, you're manipulating then what's getting talked about, what's getting focused on. If you're doing your job as a therapist, in my opinion, you are manipulating and thoughtfully yeah. what conversation is happening between you. But it's a pro-social manipulation as opposed to an anti-social manipulation. It's a manipulation that facilitates the client seeing what they need to see, dealing with what they need to deal with, in order to get free in their own lives. Anti-social manipulation is you are doing something that gets more control of the person in front of you for yourself, not for their benefit, but for your indulgence. So it's, it's not that, you know, we influence people whether or not we want to. Yeah. We, we persuade people whether or not we want to often towards how we think. Uh -huh. The question is whether or not it's a persuasion that creates strength in the person you're with or creates dependency and ownership of the person you're with. So maybe talk a little bit more about that. I think sometimes, as I've been trying to sort through this, this persuasion kind of idea, um, mm -hmm. I like how you brought up the idea, you know, how in your practice <laughs> you are you are doing that. You're introducing kind of these new ideas and trying to push people to consider them and to view them. Yes. And I think sometimes, just in my limited perspective, when I've seen persuasion when it's gotten maybe passionate, that I'm like, oh, like that's <laughs> that's not good. Like there's like, I feel like it's imposing too much on the other person, but but I also mm -hmm. see a place for the passion when you're talking about mm -hmm. some ideas. I don't know. But again, I would put it at not whether or not it's passionate, but what is the subjective? I mean, I imagine Christ was quite passionate times about what he was trying to persuade people to see and understand because it matters yeah because it impacts real people because uh, because often the ideas that the people around Christ were believing in were, were destructive and limited and yet so justified in many people's minds so it's not necessarily whether or not someone is passionate but what are they actually doing are they passionate in order to really help you wake up to something that's causing harm? Or is it a passion that's about trying to basically dominate and get someone else to be self-doubting enough that they'll just yield to what you're saying? 
Yeah. So again, what's driving the behavior? A lot of people get married in a particular way, which is you have a sort of dominant, passionate person, if you want that way of saying it, with someone who's more self-doubting, yielding, and kind of insecure. And then you put those two together and yeah. one basically hijacks the life of the other person and they co-construct it because one feels they, they want what they want and they want the other person to reinforce it or support it and their partner is self-doubting enough or hasn't forged a sense of her or himself, himself enough that they will just kind of succumb yeah. to that pressure. Just take hold of it. But it, it can be stable looking, but really limiting of both people in the marriage. Yeah. Um, so maybe with your experience, um, and maybe mm -hmm. you would ex explain it differently, but when you're working with clients, I'm, I'm mm -hmm. sure you can sense those who are willing to just like, okay, I'll do whatever you say, Jennifer, and those who are going to push against you. And I mean, mm -hmm. like at what point... I mean, I like the ones who will do whatever I say. Sometimes I like that as a parent. Well, okay, like in all honesty, sometimes as a parent, maybe that's a sure. better way to approach it. Like, when do I back off? Like, my kids, like, when sure. is it, like, the, the persuasion? And maybe I'm asking the same question over and over again, but, like, when do you back off? Like, if you see someone, maybe even a client or as a parent, and yeah. you're trying to, like, you just, you can see... Yep. And you're talking, and they just won't. Yep, definitely. Then, okay, I think I'm, I'm working harder than they are. I'm trying to make something happen that it's not clear that they want enough, or maybe they're fine with me taking on all the the the, the passion and the position around addressing this issue in their life, yeah. but they're really not with me. Yeah, if I'm doing my job, I'm going to back out of that position pretty quickly and hand the dilemma back to them, which is, this is your life, your decision. You have to decide if you're going to uh, keep doing this to your spouse. You have to decide yeah. who you're going to be, how you're going to live. You have to decide if you're going to keep perpetuating uh, a marriage like this or keep submitting to this kind of treatment. Ultimately, you have to decide. I think you'll look better. You have to decide if you think you're worth better than this. Yeah. Because you're the only one who gets to design it. I think so it, it's kind yeah, go so, ahead. I, well, I was just going to say, I think it would be easier as maybe a therapist to back off versus a parent to back off. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because when it's a child, you get caught in that tension of, am I doing this? to manage my feelings of success or my feelings of control, or am I doing this for the true benefit of that child? Yeah. Because when you're pushing too much, well, then you're not, it isn't for the benefit of your child because it's too much. It's interfering with them defining their lives. Mm -hmm. It's interfering with them sorting out what they value. And so you, as a parent, you have to intuit and really consider what's driving my behavior? Is it about stand, standing up for something that I think will allow them to figure out what they really want and value, will allow them to develop who they are? Or am I doing something that actually interferes in the name of being a good parent? 
Yeah. And those aren't easy discernments, but they're very important and valuable ones. I, I think kind of, I mean, just listening to you talk about that, I, I picture it being more of a process of like maybe even making messing up as a parent and then seeing that and being like, oh, I can see that in this situation. Absolutely. And no question. That we can discern before. <laughs> I think the definition of a good parent is certainly not a parent that doesn't make mistakes. We all make mistakes. Yeah. We're just not going to get around that. You know, you're, you're one thing if after your kids become adults, you could now start over. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, that would be awesome because you're like, okay, I'm not going to be daunted by that. I'm not, I'm going to persevere in the face of that. I'm going to let go of this. We would all do that. So, but being a good parent is not about making no mistakes. I think being a good parent is about being willing to self-correct, being willing to see where you're wrong, being willing to take feedback and change, not to keep everybody happy with you, but change when you think this is not, this is a place I've been blind and it's working against my child. Yeah. I will truly repent, as in course correct, and do it better, do it differently. Yeah. So I think... Um, I think that's what is goodness. Goodness is a willingness to change when you wake up to what's limited or off in yourself. If you're, or just in any position in your life when you're the one listening to these voices, like these persuasive voices, and how do you ensure that you're, I mean, you're, you're taking it in where you're at least considering the ideas, but how yep. do you make sure that maybe you're thinking clearly for yourself and you're not just allowing the emotions of the, maybe yeah. the fear of the parent or whatever. Or Right. How do you... I guess what I would be thinking about is what's motivating... Well, so a couple of questions. Okay. One I would really ask myself, what do you... What do I really think about this? Independent of what anybody else would think about it or what judgment they would have or whatever... What do I really think about it? Because you can kind of tease apart. One of the things that really interferes with our ability is our need and desire, I should say our desire for validation, our desire for approval, our desire for other people to acknowledge or validate what we do. And mm -hmm. the more we need that, the more it will distract us from our own internal compass. Mm. And you don't want to cut out the voices of other people because that's immoderate in the other direction, but you don't want the voices of other people to distract you from your own inner compass. Yeah. Because this is our kind of light. This is our, this is a gift to us. So, um, I just let me ask what your question was, sorry. Well, how did you were clearly for how did you clearly, yeah. right. So I think, you know, you want to think about if I were to let go of anybody's judgment to say, what do I think uh, I would feel is right for me around this? And then the next thing I'd ask myself is, what do I think is motivating that? Is there a part of me that wants this to be the right answer? Is this the right answer that scares me or is this meaning in a good way it scares me, it challenges me? Yeah. Or is this a right answer that indulges something in me, right? Because you want to look at, is this coming from the courageous good part of me or is this coming from something more indulgent or fearful in me? And this is, again, it's an imperfect process, but 
you know, am I feeling right about marrying this person because I really do want to love them? I really do believe they're a good person and a good choice, but I feel afraid of marriage or I feel afraid of career, but I really do feel that this is a person I really could love and be loved by? Or do I want to marry this person because I'm afraid that I won't ever get married? Or I'm afraid if I don't do it now that we wouldn't be able to sustain the relationship if we don't lock it in. Is there some part, is it that I really want a beautiful wedding? <laughs> right. <laughs> is there something part of me that's driving this decision that's interfering with my better judgment? So, again, it's not a perfect process, but, but the process matters. Yeah. And, you know, I would say one of the most valuable things that I've, pushed myself on imperfectly, but has been something I've pushed myself on, is trying to be as honest with myself as I can, even when it exposes things I don't want to see or deal with. That's a gift because it's pushed me to, to put on the table stuff I'd rather have not be there, but mm-hmm. and in putting it on the table, I have more ability to deal with it or make decisions around it from a clearer mind and have less less likely to have to deal with negative consequences of forces that I didn't want to see or deal with yeah. uh, otherwise. Um, yeah, and, and we, and your, that reminds me, of, it's brings the memory of um, Fiddler on the Roof, like this idea mm-hmm. of being deeply rooted in traditions and um, to be able to push yourself around that and trying to make decisions for yourself when you have maybe right. persuasive voices or traditions or whatever that are, yes, that it would just be easier to just go along with versus trying to figure out That's what right. you think. Yes, I and I think there was a podcast, I'm trying to remember what the name of the podcast is, Malcolm Gladwell podcast, where he, I think the title of the episode was Faithful Non-Orthodoxy, and I love this episode um, because he's talking about people, the different stories he's telling, people immersed in traditions, valuable traditions. Yeah. Traditions that have shaped the group, traditions that have guided the group, traditions that have collective wisdom in them. But being willing to both honor those traditions while having the flexibility and wisdom to also know when to let go of aspects of those traditions or to challenge aspects of those traditions, while being respectful of both those traditions as well as the discernment or the uniqueness that you're bringing into that collective reality. I don't know Mm -hmm. how well I'm explaining that. But that's a kind of tension that we all ought to live in. Yeah, I think when we tend to just value, you know, conservative values, just tradition, just long thing, that's a distortion. At the same as it is, if we just value liberal values, which is about change and expansion and so on, I think that we do our best when we value both aspects of the human condition, the yeah. need for tradition and stability and the need for change and evolution and flexibility and you know the better we do at seeing what's wise in those perspectives uh, helps us evolve wisely yeah and I like I like how you articulated that because I I think 
I mean, there's the two extremes, and I think sometimes we um, do a disservice to ourselves when we're rigidly attached to the traditions without giving it much thought. But right. I also think um, some people kind of pride themselves on going completely against the traditions, maybe without right. giving it much thought either, just the thought that, look, I can break away from this. I think within within my own views and beliefs religiously, mm-hmm. I, I really view God as someone who's who's encouraging us to act and not just to be acted upon. Yeah. And definitely. And he also I also feel like though at the same time he he is encouraging us to become like a child. Like there's that scripture that says, you know, become as a child, mm-hmm. submissive me, mm-hmm. willing to submit to all the things of the Lord. You know, like a child submits to his father, like willing to be that. And um, <clears throat> there seems to me there's this bit of this tension where I feel like, well, if I become that that weak, mm-hmm. well, the meek, submissive child, then mm-hmm. that may yeah. limit my ability, my development. That's right. So again, it's just not interpreting it in a in a immoderate way. I think that there is a real value in submissiveness if you understand the word as I think about it. It's not a submission of self. It's a willingness to be receptive. Meaning, you know, with my Art of Desire workshop, I talk a lot about receiving. It's remarkably yeah. difficult for many people to receive, to receive love, to receive goodness, to even receive the beauty that's in the world to receive the, the nurturance of food or sweet. Okay, so there is something about the, the lack of control that comes through being receptive even to the goodness around us. Many of us resist it like crazy because it interferes with a sense of dominance and control, even if we're doing that dominance and control in a kind of perfectionistic, anti-self way. Right? Huh. Yeah. And so... There is a real beauty in a kind of submission. I'm willing to open my heart, willing to receive the goodness or the wisdom or even the challenge from God that this new reality is bringing into my life. I'm willing, not because I'm worthless, because I have no wisdom, because I'm just, you know, I'm just a pawn in this larger uh, humiliating process, but because there is, you know, because I trust in the ultimate goodness that is in the world. I trust it enough to tolerate the challenge, to tolerate the difficulty, and to be willing to learn from it and to let my soul be shaped through it. Hmm. And not because I'm selfless, but because I have a self, because I can actually use myself to learn from this and to create more capacity within myself through it. So it's not loss of self, it's actually creating a more solid self in the process. That's what a meaningful submission is, is forging a more solid self, not losing oneself. When when we talk about losing yourself to find yourself, I see that 100% as losing your ego to find your solid self, yeah. losing your desire for control, dominance, or fear, right, to actually forge a solid self. Because it is finding yourself, ultimately, in that scripture, right? Yeah. So, and I think we often think that's somehow antithetical 
to goodness, but I think that's a, a really blasphemous view. I think it's the wrong view. I think it's a beautiful way to put it. That submission or meekness and humility is this process of becoming a stronger self. And I think so often yeah. it's portrayed as this way to let go of who mm. you are and absorb yeah, what this other depressed. person is. Yes, depressed, quietly resentful, and broken. That's a virtue somehow. <laughs> yeah. I, fail, I fail to see it. I fail to see it. I see so much suppression of self um, among many LDS women in particular that I work with, and the resentment and the anger and the depression and the, and the fear that that brings. Mm-hmm. And I do not see that there's no virtue in that position. Yeah, a kind of submission that helps you get stronger is I'm willing to deal with this possibility. I'm willing to find my courage and strength within it. Um, how do I submit to this reality that's coming upon me that is really hard? As in, it's going. It's part of life. What can I learn from it? How can I bring my best self to it? How can I become stronger through it? That is a virtuous submission. Okay, so then one last thought. Um, with Nephi, when he had that moment when he's asked to cut off Raven's head. Yeah. For me, as I think about that, um, I mean, I think about what I would be think, what would be going through my head in that moment. Because everything yeah. about me would say this is completely wrong. And like it would be hard for me to move forward with that when I think about yep. kind of what you learned when you were in the NTC, you know, like God wants me right. to, you know, push myself and do what I what I think is the most right thing and kind of struggle with that. That it seems hard for me to picture myself in that position yeah. and to yield to that. To not be crippled, not be crippled by all of the things you think people would think yeah so I mean maybe not even using that but like kind of that idea I mean maybe you can talk about that a little bit like how do you when something seems to be so against what you're thinking like how is it possible to I don't even know well so exactly I I think I know what you're asking I think there's um, there's maybe two ideas in that that are coming to me one is that I, I don't like the idea that many of us perpetuate, which is, I had no idea why I was supposed to move to Kansas, you know, and we packed up everything, we had no clue. Four yeah. years later, my husband got a promotion and we suddenly knew. I, 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 I don't want to disrespect other people for whom that is true, but that is not the way that I have experienced God and inspiration. I mean, I feel like that it's more... I think that people are prone to those narratives that want a sense that God has this big plan and you're just kind of mindlessly trying to figure out what it is, but it's all going to come together for you. Yeah. I think that there's there's risk in that way of thinking because I think you're giving away too much power and you're looking for signs, you know. You're always looking for signals that are about what you're supposed to do that are outside of yourself that can be really nonsensical. And so I think it's dangerous because I think when something feels right, 
it really feels right, even if you haven't put it all together. It really has a sense to it. There's there's something about it that stacks up against reality, right? Yeah. You know, as I said in the beginning, we are taking a family gap here. There's, you know, reasons why we decided this makes sense, but it is ultimately an act of faith on some level because there's a lot we don't know. There's risk inherent to making a decision to um, to, to do something unconventional like that. And so I think that you're in the process of a decision like that. I think that you're recognizing there you're never going to have all the answers, but you're stacking it up against reality and mm-hmm. you're being thoughtful and you're there's a kind of reflexive process between your gut and the spirit and realities. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what do you do with the house while you're gone? What about how's it gonna impact this child? What is it gonna how's it gonna impact work? Those kinds of things. So I think when we when we make it something that has no logic to it, we work against ourselves. And we don't see that oftentimes when we do courageous and good things, there really is a logic that's operating. It's not the only thing operating, mm-hmm. but there is a logic that's operating within that wise decision. Yeah. There is a sense to it. And I don't think it does us any um, good to, to distract from that reality. So I think choices that really can withstand the test of time often have courage and uncertainty in them, but they also have a sense that kind of keeps feeling valuable. Yeah. I would imagine that Layden in that moment had a clear enough directive and a clear enough logical sense of why it would make sense to kill Laban that it felt right to him in a way that he could have confidence in. Yes. Right? Yeah. It wasn't just like, oh, I hope I got that information right. <laughs> 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 that would be a pretty <laughs> right. to take. I'm, I'm sure he understood that Laban would continue to interfere with their progress as people if, and that there, there was an understanding that that was true. And, and probably confirmation through the spirit that this was indeed what he needed to do yes. to protect what they protect them. I think mm-hmm. the idea that I struggle with that I don't think is intended to be taught through this, through this example with Nephi, but I, I feel like sometimes the message that is being taught is to, you know, just throw all your logic and your judgment out the yeah. window and to trust. Right. And that, I guess, yeah. to me, doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel, and I, no, it's and wrong. I that's mm-hmm. why I struggle with sure. that. As you should, because it's a self-suppression position. Like, you're, you're nobody. Don't have any thoughts. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it's a dependency model that many of us like because we want the idea that God's going to solve it all for us if we just yield all the time. But it's not about really tolerating the anxiety of being a chooser and a decider and a discerner and a thinker in the world. When we do it best, we're doing that in addition to really striving for what is good and right and being open to inspiration and invitations along the way. It's really, we need both. Absolutely. Yeah. That's like, I need to have a self and I want to be open to God and other wise people in my life. Both matter. Yeah. And maybe that's why God, I think, because I feel like so strongly he is saying, you know, <laughs> You have this agency. I want you to act for yourself. But 
I want you to develop yourself. So I feel like at the same mm -hmm. time, he's also the strong message of saying, but be meek. Right, but it's again a meekness that facilitates the yeah. strength, the strength of the self. Yeah, because our theology is quite unique in that it's saying we can become godly. Right? Yeah. we really are capable of that. But you can't do that without forging a strong spiritual anchor internally. Yeah. So it's it's a meekness in facilitating that wisdom. That that that's the virtue. Yeah. Well, great. Thank you, Jennifer. This has been. You're welcome. Great.